continue with our study together on the subject purposes of preaching. This series, as well we know, is based on Acts chapter 2. The seventh purpose of gospel preaching coming forth from this unique chapter is to inform men how to be saved. What was Peter doing on Pentecost of Acts 2? What did he say? He was doing and he was saying exactly what Jesus Christ told him to say. In his closing moments on earth, Jesus said to the chosen twelve, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16, 15 and 16. Also in his closing moments, he said, Then open he their ears that they might understand the scriptures. And saith unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Luke 24, 45 to 47. In Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, Jesus told them, you're going to receive this power to thus preach when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit then direct, directed Peter, followed by these apostles, to preach to that great audience gathered together on that occasion exactly what Jesus told them to preach. And Jesus' words through the Holy Spirit, this was a divinely preached sermon, a miraculous sermon. They were filled with the miraculous power <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit simply used Peter and the apostles as the mouthpiece through which to get the message out to these people. And to utter all the truths uttered and among them to inform them as it came to a close, this great sermon as to what to do to be saved. And so Peter preached the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, verses 22 to 24. When he mentioned the resurrection of Christ, he quoted from David in order to prove that those words uttered were not about David himself. But David foreseeing as a prophet of God the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. That's exactly what Jesus told them to preach. In my name, repentance and remission of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What are men doing and saying today? Envision, envision in your mind this great day, this momentous event, this tremendous crowd, Peter the Apostle standing up and preaching this first gospel sermon in the name of the resurrected Christ. This first gospel sermon that looked backward instead of forward. Every other gospel sermon beginning with Genesis 3.15 had a forward look in anticipation of the coming of Christ, the death and burial, the resurrection of Christ. This is the first gospel sermon that looked backward on that completed, consummated event. The first gospel sermon, therefore, in the name of the resurrected Christ. All those other sermons, multitudes of them, all the way down through the Old Testament, to the very end of the Old Testament, and the last two verses of Malachi 4, 5 and 6. The preaching of John the Baptist. The preaching of Christ himself. The preaching of the 70 disciples that were sent out by Christ. The preaching of the 12 during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. All the sermons of Christ, the object of the gospel, looked forward. And it was what Christ did, what he accomplished that allowed Acts chapter 2 to become a reality with a backward look. Two things are anticipated in the Old Testament. The coming of Christ and the coming of the church of Christ. If there had not been the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, there would have been no Acts 2. Acts 2 looks back to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, the consummation, the completion of the good news, Jesus coming to pay the price for man's redemption. So now let us envision that great event, that great sermon that has been preached, quotations from Joel, quotations from David, proving that Jesus Christ was everything he claimed to be. Quotations from David in order to prove he had indeed been raised from the dead. And then that summing up statement that all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ. So we want to allow one or two or three of these modern day evangelists these theologians of today to step up in Peter's shoes and answer the question that has just been raised. Men and brethren, <clears throat> what shall we do? And so the first gentleman that steps up 
on this occasion is a Calvinist. And he's heard this great sermon preached. He's heard the question raised. He's standing there before the audience. And he's fixing to address this audience that Peter has been addressing. And he's going to answer the question, what must we do? And he says, sadly and tragically, there's not one thing you can do. God did it all. There's not a thing you can do. In the eons of eternity, God decided in his mind that there was going to be a certain group saved and a certain group lost. That number is fixed in the mind of God. Nothing man can do can add to it or take away from it. If you are in the predestinated, predestined, foreknown, saved, then you are going to be saved without having to do a thing. And there's nothing you can do about it. God's going to take care of your salvation. And if you're in the predestined lost, you couldn't be saved if you wanted to. No need to raise this question, what must we do? Because there's nothing you can do. You're either saved or lost, and there's not one thing you can do about either one. You cannot decide which group you're going to be in. It has nothing to do with you or any decision you might make. This was God's decision, not yours. Redemption is God's work, not yours. Don't raise that question, what, what must we do? There's not a thing you can do. Just imagine. If that had occurred on Pentecost of Acts 2, what would have been the reaction of those people? Sure, they would have thought, what then is the purpose of all of this? Why even preach to us? We should have stayed home. It is true that the Bible teaches God choosing, God electing, God predestinating, God foreknowing. All of those things are true. Just not in the manner in which wicked, wicked Calvinism and all those associated with it preach it. Paul said, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath prepared for them that love him? James one in verse five, or two in verse five. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, First Peter 1, 2. Who hath saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. First Peter 1, and verse 9, 
We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen us to salvation through sanctification of spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him be delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, Acts 2, 22 and 23. Put these passages together and we have this simple, easy to understand concept of foreknowledge, predestination, Election and choosing. Out in eternity, prior to in the beginning, God. God formulated a plan. And this plan, in essence, says when man is created and lives his life on earth, all those who respond to my word in the obedience of faith, I'm going to say. And all of those who refuse to respond to my word in the obedience of faith are going to be lost. I'm going to choose those who choose me. Hearken, my beloved brethren, had not God chosen the rich of this world, the poor of this world, rich in faith? He chooses those who by faith choose him. I'm going to elect those who elect me. First Peter 1, 2 has all the elements in the plan of salvation. God's electing. Christ shedding his blood, man's obedience of faith, all the elements are right there. God elects, God chooses those who elect and choose him in the obedience of faith. God in eternity chose to elect all those who when time came obeyed the gospel of Christ. And therefore it's up to every man as to whether he will obey or disobey, accept or reject. Those who obey the gospel are the predestined, foreknown by God, group that God said he would save. Those who obey God. Those who are the lost are those who refuse to be the elect of God. Refuse to choose God in the obedience of faith. Refuse to elect God by doing the will of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 the Spirit sanctifies those who believe, and the call comes through the gospel. This call was launched in its perfected, consummated form in Acts 2. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father were calling them through the gospel that the Holy Spirit preached through Peter and the apostles. And therefore, when they raise the question, what must we do? They were in essence saying, we choose God. We elect God. We've heard the gospel. And we want to submit to it in the obedience of faith. What must we do? There's no doctrine that has ever been invented that's more wicked, more inconsistent, more at war with the nature of God than this ungodly, wicked concept of Calvinism. And so, to the disappointment of the crowd, having heard that sermon, they're happy to see him leave the podium. And now, a denominational preacher steps up 
He's heard the sermon preached. He sees this great crowd. He's heard the question raised, what must we do? And he says, well, you just need to come down here to the altar and you need to bow before this God that you've heard about and this Christ and you need to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and move and in your life, in your heart, and save you from your sin. Is that what Peter told him to do? Who is the source of this sermon? It's the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's trying to move in these people's minds to prompt them to obey the gospel. And this silly concept and answer to the Question of questions is the folly of follies. Come down here and pray for the Holy Spirit to move in your life and save you from your sins. When this sermon has as its source the Holy Spirit. And the answer that was given to that question was the answer that came from the Holy Spirit. It just stuns the mind at the folly of human thinking that's at war with the thinking of God. But then the most prevalent answer to this question comes from this next evangelist that steps up to the podium. He's heard this sermon. He's heard the quotation from Joel, the quotation from David. He's heard the question raised, what must we do? And to everyone's utter shock and surprise, utter unbelief at hearing such a response to the question, they hear this noted evangelist who perhaps has traveled around the world. He's been on television. He's been everywhere preaching a perverted gospel. And he says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. If he had said such a thing, no doubt those people would have just shook their minds and their heads in unbelief. What? Now, I normally would never make this statement concerning anybody regarding any particular situation. I know what you're going to do. I know what he's going to do. I know what she's going to do because... Sometimes we may be right. Sometimes we may be wrong. And we may know this person so well that, that we pretty much have a pretty good idea of what he or she is going to do or going to say on a given situation because we've seen this person respond in similar situations over the year. But even at that, we cannot really know what a person is going to do or say until we hear it or see it. But I make an exception right here because I just know, and I think you do too, what those people would have said if they had heard a ridiculous response like that. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No doubt they would have said, but sir, we already believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's true before this sermon started, we thought he was a fake and a fraud and a deceiver. We cried for his blood to be on us and on our children. 
But we've heard this gospel sermon. We've heard the proof and the evidence given. We've heard Peter quote from Joel. And he quoted from David. We now know and believe with all of our heart that the one whom we crucified, for whose blood we cried, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the reason we raised the question. And you tell us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when we're standing here as believers. Now, what else must we do? We've got this faith in Christ. We believe in Christ. We believe in all the miracles of Christ. Miracles, wonders, and signs which he did in our midst. We now know why he did them to prove who he was. And we now believe and know who he was. He's Jesus Christ, the one with whom our wicked hands have crucified and slain. You've not answered the question. You've just muddied up the water. And yet as well we know, that is the most prevalent answer given this question. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. And we shake our own heads in disbelief that so-called learned men can stand before an audience and right here in Montgomery, Alabama, churches on every corner, and most of them, when they come to the close of their sermon, they will issue an invitation. And this is what they will say. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. That's it. That's it. No repentance and certainly no baptism. One of the purposes of this sermon on Pentecost was to inform most people how to be saved. And here's the Holy Spirit's answer. Through Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. He starts where they were. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He took them where they needed to be. Now they needed to repent. And upon a confession of Christ, be baptized into Christ. Because Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But that preacher answered that question, believes. He that believeth is saved and then he's baptized. God is not going to express mercy on the day of judgment to preachers and theologians who have preached like this. They're, he's just not. Well, tragically, there's a practice now prevalent in the church that is an absolute tragedy and it's growing more prevalent as we move along. And this practice is for preachers, gospel preachers, who preach the true gospel of Christ and who believe in Acts chapter 2 and who've often preached Acts chapter 2. But many of these preachers now come to the close of their sermons and they do not tell or inform people how to be saved like Peter did on Pentecost. They just lay aside one of the purposes of preaching. And they don't give the plan of salvation. They just say something like, if we can help you in any way, you please come. That is beyond tragic. 
about 40 years ago, me and a friend of mine went to hear a noted, well-known, his name was a household word in the church, 40 years ago. He's dead now. And we went to hear him in Augusta, Georgia. And he preached a great sermon. He was a great preacher. And he came to the close of the sermon, and there was a several hundred people present on this gate. He didn't give a plan of salvation. He did not, like Peter on the day of Pentecost, tell those people how to respond to the gospel he just preached. He just made some silly little statement like, if we can help you in any way, you come forward. At the close of the service, and everybody was mingling around as we love to do and socializing, my friend and I went up to inquire as to why he did not give the plan of salvation. And he said, I just don't think it's necessary to give the plan of salvation every time. I couldn't believe my ears. We were not able to go any further than that. I wanted to say, among other things, Brother, whose invitation is this? Whose gospel is this you've just preached? It's not yours. That's what I wanted to tell him. And this invitation is not yours. It's the gospel of Christ, and it's the invitation of Christ. Shame on you. You didn't preach a completed gospel sermon. You didn't do what was done on Pentecost of Acts 2. You need to go back to Pentecost of Acts 2 and reread and restudy and learn how to preach. Because you did not preach a completed gospel tonight. Right here in Montgomery, Alabama, several years ago, one of the largest congregations that believes the old Jerusalem gospel had a gospel meeting. Another well-known preacher. I was not there, but I was told he too came to the close of this meeting and some 500 plus people present. And he made some silly little statement like, we can help you in any way you come forward. I would love to have been there. Because if I had, I would have humbly uh, and properly taken that brother aside and said to him what I've just said. It's, it's more than the mind can comprehend. Here's a man preaches a gospel sermon and closes it without telling people what to do to obey the gospel. He's just preached. Suppose a man gets up and he preaches a great sermon on the grace of God. He goes back to Genesis 6, 8, where Noah found grace and that was the Lord. He goes all the way down through the New Old Testament, into the New Testament, preaching a marvelous, heart-stirring sermon on the grace of God. And then he comes to the close of the sermon, does not tell people how to be saved, and therefore does not tell people and inform people how to respond to the grace of God in the obedience of faith. Of what value was that sermon? It stirred people up. It was a great sermon. But it was not a consummated, completed gospel sermon on the grace of God. Of what value is it to talk about the grace of God and then not tell people how to access the grace of God in the obedience of faith? Suppose that individual goes back to Genesis 3.15 and he preaches the gospel of Christ all the way down through the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
this great sermon on Christ and what he's done to redeem us from our sins. And then he comes to the close of sermon and does not tell people how to obey Christ and submit to Christ in the obedience of faith in order to access the consummated work of Christ on the cross. Suppose he goes back and preaches a marvelous sermon on the blood of Christ. He may quote as his foundational verse, Acts 12, or Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I fight the land of Egypt. And he specifies how you need, as those people had the blood of Christ on their doorpost, you need to have the blood of Christ on the doorpost of your soul. He preaches a great sermon on God's answer to Genesis 3, 6. And he says, now, if we can help you in any way, you just come and we'll be back. Hey. Doesn't inform the audience how to apply and appropriate the blood of Christ to his or her soul in the obedience of faith. I tell you, none of those so-called sermons are gospel sermons, not in God's eyes. When we have our little five, six, or seven-minute gospel sermon on Wednesday night when the brother gets through with those words of exhortation he does what Peter did on the day of Pentecost they're not they may not be a single visitor in the audience every person in the audience knows the answer to the question that was raised on Pentecost Acts 2 but he's going to give that because that's what gospel preachers and teachers do and all of these children we have coming up in here in this congregation. And most of them of sufficient age, they can understand plain English. And they need to hear again and again and again. Every time words of exhortation are given and the invitation extended, they need to hear. what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. They need to inform the audience of what one must do in order to be saved. It is a shame and a disgrace what many of our otherwise faithful gospel preachers are doing in the preaching they're doing today. They are not preachers like Peter was on the day of Pentecost of Acts 2. How arrogant how arrogant it is for a man to consummate a gospel sermon like that and to say in his heart, I just don't think it's necessary to give the plan of salvation at the close of every sermon. These men need to be approached every time they pull off folly and foolishness like that. And they need to be corrected about their folly. One of the purposes of gospel preaching is to inform men and women how to be saved. God forbid that we would ever close five minutes of Bible exhortation or a 30 or 45 minute gospel sermon regardless of the subject matter without informing the audience like Peter did 
guided by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now, in answer to the question, what must we do? And then give God's answer to that question. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. As an expression of your faith, having heard this gospel sermon on this occasion. But a confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Buried in that watery grave to God. To contact the blood of Christ. Hearing the gospel. Believing the gospel. Believing Christ the object of the gospel. Repenting, repent of sins. Confess that sweet name. And let someone baptize you into Christ. Because Jesus said, he that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. You need to obey the gospel or you need prayers for sins committed or you just need prayers for help and aid in living the Christian life. We want to encourage you to come while we stand and say. God.